the title of the sermon Sunday morning is All In. And uh, maybe that brings to mind a poker player who shoves all the chips to the middle of the table. But um, there was a, a group of missionaries about 100 years ago who were known as one-way missionaries. And when they went overseas, they packed all of their earthly belongings, what few they had, in coffins. And their coffins went with them, and it was a signal that they weren't planning to come back. One of those missionaries was a guy named A.J. Milne. And when he set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, he knew full well that the headhunters in the tribal village where he was going had martyred every missionary that had ever gone there. And yet he went. His coffin was packed. He had already died to himself. For 35 years, he lived among that tribe and loved them. And when he died, he was buried in his coffin in the center of the village. And they erected a sign over his grave that said, when he arrived, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand that it's a one-way missionary, that the old has to be left behind, that we can't keep a foot in in performance and God, I'm I'm doing great things for you, so bless me. He's trying to say, you leave it behind. Now, I introduce it that way because Hebrews 10 is kind of a hinge chapter in Hebrews. Matter of fact, the transition between 10 and 11 is one of the reasons that some people think Paul wrote it. Is because Paul, if you remember in his writings, he's pretty famous for writing uh, doctrine for half of the book and practical application for the other half. Philippians, it's two chapters and two chapters. Romans, it's 11 chapters and then five chapters. Uh, uh, Colossians, it's two and two. Galatians is three and three. And so Paul is pretty consistent and saying, here's what to think, and then here's what to do with it. I don't really see it that way in Hebrews. Of course, you all know that I don't think Paul wrote it. But um, it, it's almost like chapter 11 is an interlude, because if you read the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 12, it makes a lot of sense. So Hebrews chapter 10 has a sort of a, a summation. The first uh, 18 verses of chapter 10 are summarizing everything that he's talked about for the last nine chapters. And so when, when he gets to chapter uh, 10, he's, he starts summarizing, and, and when when you read, um, um, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, 
Um, I, I don't know if you've ever watched um, a show about a painter who's painting on canvas. And a lot of times you'll see them kind of sketch out their the rough outlines of what they're going to be painting to kind of block the uh the the lines and, and the proportions and everything this word shadow is that 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 god is painting a masterpiece and the things that we saw in the old testament the law that was just a shadow of things to come that wasn't the color that wasn't the the detail that wasn't the shapes that was a a shadow of things to come and so he he says something then that that's got to sound familiar to us. It can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, made perfect to those who draw near. This is what he's been talking about. This is like, uh, matter of fact, I I titled it in the in the outline for Sunday. If you always do what you always done, you always get what you always got, and that's what the writer is saying. If you yeah, do one more time, just just. In case anybody wasn't paying attention, the old way has got to be gone. The old priest, the old prophets, angels speaking, Moses speaking, all of that is good, but it is the old, it's in the past. <clears throat> so, again, he summarizes uh, verse 4, um, and I'm, I'm not going to go back in here to all the things that he's talked about in Hebrews. We, we're all caught up, right? He says uh, that... That, that Jesus is superior to anything. The, he's a, the superior uh, spokesman, the superior high priest, the superior sacrifice. And so he's summarizing here. Uh, he said, uh, the worshipers have been cleansed, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So the continual over and over and over sacrifice was needed because sin is over and over and over. And he said, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So when Christ came into the world, verse 5, chapter 10, he said, sacrifices and offering you have not desired. And uh, he's he's quoting um Exodus here, sacrifices, uh, and this particular is quoting Psalm 40, but a body you've prepared for me. Then I said, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written in the scroll. And then he repeats himself, verse 8, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He does away, verse 9, with the first in order to establish the second. So the sacrificial system has gone away. The angels speaking have gone away. The prophets have gone away. Moses has gone away. The new has come, and we can't have a foot in both worlds. So he says, but when Christ came, verse 12, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. He has said that several times through the scripture, uh, through Hebrews. I've talked about it, that he sat down, and a priest never sits down. Nobody sits down until what? The work is finished. 
on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And so it, it's, it's a, the, the writer of Hebrews is kind of putting a stake in the ground. He's saying, I don't know how many times I've got to tell you this, but there does not need to be anything else done to pay for your sins. Your sins have been forgiven. Last chapter, he told us, I, I'm no longer writing on tablets. I'm writing on hearts. Um, and so then he, he brings in verse 15. Well, verse 14, for by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected. And you know, the you've heard this before, the, the translation of the Greek word for perfect, complete. Oh. Hebrew, uh, Philippians 1, 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good word, well, work in you, will perfect this, complete it. And so it is finished. He's done. The work is complete. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, saying, verse 15, chapter 10, this is the covenant that I will, future tense, make with them. After those days, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Hard stop. He changes gears in the next verse. I, I drew a line in my Bible between chapter 18 and chapter, uh, verse 18 and verse 19. Because in, in this, he's finished summarizing. And now he's beginning to introduce the application that we're going to see in, verse, in chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11 is the illustration. I, I've said that a minute ago. So he's going to tell us how faith interacts with this new covenant, this new thing he's been talking about for 10 and a half chapters. And so the word therefore in verse 19 is one of the strongest therefores in the Bible. Most of the time, therefore relates to a few verses back or maybe a chapter back. This relates to 10 and a half chapters. And so when he says, therefore, since, doesn't use the word if, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. So, so he's starting application. You remember he talked about the accessibility in chapter 9, that, that we have access to God. He is the mediator of this new covenant. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. So that brings to mind the curtain in the temple. But here he throws a twist. No, the curtain is his flesh. The, 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 the only thing between you and God is the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the only thing that needs to be between us and God. Because he has given us that access. He is the curtain. And the curtain has been torn. The curtain has been broken. The curtain has been crucified. And so no longer is there a, uh, a, a barrier of any kind. The, our sin is not a barrier waiting on the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice something 
And hopefully he comes out indicating that God accepted. Now that sacrifice, Christ our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Come let us join the feast. And so in chapter 10, verse 19, he switches gears. And now he says, here's some action points for you. And these are in the in the language, uh, the original language, these are imperatives. So these aren't suggestions. He says, one, let us draw near. And with each of these, he has a qualifier. Here's the command, and here's the character trait that allows you to do it. Let us draw near with what? A sincere heart. With our hearts sprinkled clean, that's... Um, that clause is a modifier. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Qualifier, character, without wavering. You remember what James said about that? If you ask in faith and doubt, you're like the surf of the sea driven by the wind. And so he says, let us Hold fast the confession. Um, have we talked about this before, what the word confess means? That, that too often when we think about the word confess, especially as it result, relates to our sin, we hear the word reveal. We confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. Confess. Uh, confess. Uh, reveal as if God doesn't know. The word means agree. It means we are in agreement with. It's like the father knows the son broke the jar. The son knows that he broke the jar. The son knows the father knows he breaks the jar. Confession is coming into agreement where everybody's on the same page. And so when he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, it's the agreement that our Remember what he said a couple of chapters ago? Our better hope, our, our better hope is in Christ. It's not in bulls and goats and, and hypotheticals and what does the priest say and what does the goat say before you barbecue him, George? <laughs> you guys weren't here early. George was talking about barbecued goat and it, Made all of us uncomfortable. <laughs> so the third imperative in chapter 10 is verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir each other up. And then the modifier, not neglecting to meet each other together as is the habit of son, a son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so he said, let us draw near to God because we can, we have access. The, to call someone's name is to request their presence. Let us hold fast to our confession. And remember, he's talking to Hebrews who are struggling with whether or not they want to go back to the old ways 
or whether they're going to buy into this new covenant. And then he says, hey, we're better together. I, I was so glad when we emerged from COVID. And, and while I love that we can Zoom, we've learned to feel like we're together, right? We, we've adapted to this, to where the people who are watching us online, they, they got something to say, they say it. And we act like they're in the room, and they act like we're in their room. And so we, we encourage one another through presence. And then he says something really scary. Steve, read 26 for me. Loudly. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant, the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. <laughs> Where did that come from? He's, he's been so encouraging. Let us draw near, right? Let us hold fast. Let us not forsake the assembling together. And all of a sudden, he says, and, and so is he referring to not doing those imperatives? Is that his definition of sinning deliberately? Or is this just a general word for sinning? And does it does it mean apostasy? Does it mean falling from grace? We talked about that back in Hebrews chapter 6. Any ideas? I think he's talking about an habitual, habitual, anyway, a constant lifestyle of sinning, you know. Well, we know that different people have looked at this different ways, that, that the, the, the people who are, if you have studied this at all, the Armenian perspective is to feel that you can fall from grace. These are people who have committed apostasy and they, they're out of the club. They, they, once they were saved, now they're lost. A more reformed tradition says, well, if they can do this, they never were saved in the first place. And that, that kind of is the, uh, even though I don't buy into everything about reformed theology, uh, I this is I, I would agree that this is an indicator that we are supposed to take seriously, but it is not supposed to frighten us into thinking that we can somehow commit a sin that is beyond what God can forgive. Keep reading or read again what Steve just read. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. That We know that from the Old Testament. If you broke the law, you died, right? The, the, the whole uh, woman caught in adultery in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. Uh, let who, who has not sinned cast the first stone. Jesus never said she didn't deserve to die. He just 
was going to have some qualifiers on her execution. And so the law of Moses, if you sin, you die. And he says, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, don't miss this, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? You remember back in chapter 6, he said that if you want to go back to the old way, you might as well crucify him again. So it's very similar language. Uh, and, and then he, he says in the, uh, the next sentence, he says, who has profaned the blood of the covenant and has outraged the spirit of grace. So we, when the Bible talks about an unpardonable sin, most of us think, most of us think that what he's talking about is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to die without submitting to what it was the Holy Spirit came to do, and that's to draw us to Christ. Uh, it, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. John 6, 44, no one comes to the Father, comes to the Son unless the Father draws them. And so when we when we don't allow that, when we deny that, if if we can, uh, you know, I told you my favorite new verses from Philippians 3, I, I press hold, I, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And once Christ takes hold of you, you're not going to be let go. And so I, I think if you look at the big picture, I'll just do it that way. Uh, I just turned the mic on on my computer so that you could hear it. Okay, so at the very end of that section, he says, kind of like he did in chapter 6, but you guys are okay. You endured a hard struggle. You, uh, you Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Verse 33, you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your possessions because you had a better one. So he says, stay connected. Don't throw away that confidence. Hold fast to the confession of your faith. And then he ends the chapter by saying, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Now, I, I got to do this quickly, and I'll do it a little bit better on Sunday morning. But all of chapter 11 is illustration. It's talking about the faith that we can have. And I'm just going to read to you what... Um, uh, Warren Wiersbe said about this. I, I really like the way he said it. He said, um, where is it? Oh, Abel with faith worshiping. Enoch, faith walking. Noah, faith working. The patriarchs, faith waiting, Moses, faith warring, Joshua and Rahab, 
faith winning. And, and but but don't miss this. He says he first he he sort of gives a definition of faith. Um, Martin Luther King said it's it's like taking the first step, even though you can't see the whole stairway. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or evidence of things not yet seen. And then he says. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So he goes all the way back to the beginning. The universe was created by God. And then you know the stories, right? You, you, when you see these names, especially my Wednesday night crowd, you, you know the stories. Abel, Cain and Abel. That, that, that Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel had a better offering. And then we get Enoch, who was... Uh, shortly after that, uh, and did not see death. Noah and the flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, and then it takes a, a summary statement in 13. These all died in faith. They never received all of the things promised. Now, they saw some pretty incredible things. Then he cranks back up. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac, verse 20, invoked future blessings. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. And he's going through uh, sort of a, a, a chronology. By faith, verse 24, Moses, when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, this is a very interesting verse, verse 26, chapter 11, 26. He considered the reproach of Christ. What did Moses know about Christ? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of, of Egypt. So the writer of Hebrews is connecting the new covenant once again. He's saying that the reproach of Christ is what's out there. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence, the conviction of things not yet seen. Moses had not yet seen Christ. Abraham had not yet seen Christ. Isaac, Jacob had not yet seen Christ. Then he talks about the people that crossed the Red Sea. Then he talked about Rahab, the prostitute. And all of these people were faithful people. Then I got to chapter 11, verse 32. And I started reading those names. Gideon. Barak. Samson, Jephthah, David. Do you know the backstories with those people? Gideon was the one who demanded continual signs from God before he would commit to obedience. Is that faith? Barak was a warrior who lived at the time of the, the judge, the only female judge, Deborah. And his great statement of faith was, 
I'll go to war as long as you'll go with me. Samson, I can't think of anything faithful he ever did. Jephthah was the one who said to the Lord in the heat of a battle, if you will allow me to win this battle, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home. And it was his daughter. Now, nobody really thinks he sacrificed her. We think that he uh, consecrated her to perpetual virginity because the, the scripture, the story in Judges tells us that she mourned her uh, virginity. She mourned her, her, that she would never be a mother. David, Samuel. David is one of the most public sinners in the Bible. So I made me a little list. And we'll end with this. Everybody listed in this chapter is a person of faith. One, they were flawed individuals that God chose to use. Two, God spoke to them through his word. They didn't always obey. God spoke to them through the word. Three, their inner selves was stirred. Somehow, Rahab stirred to go against her own people in order to protect the Hebrew spies. Noah stood against the entire world as he was ridiculed for building a boat in the midst of a drought. Their inner selves were stirred, for they obeyed God. Now again, Samson didn't, he's not the exact golden poster boy of obedience. But he obeyed God when God made him. And then five, God bore witness. He used these stories. I, I am so comforted. I, I get up a little bit nervous when I read about Noah because I don't think I'd have the courage to stand against the whole world and build a boat in the midst of a drought. But I can identify with the people in this verse. <laughs> I can identify with these flawed people that made us say faith is not about us. It's about God. Somebody, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. And the next line says what? And that's not of yourselves. You, you can't even conjure up your own faith. Because if you could, you'd brag about it. So this faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not yet seen. So, as we close, find yourself in all those weak people. Find yourself in people that were flawed, that faith wasn't about what they could do, but what God could do through them. The last verse, verse 39, 40. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They hoped in the Messiah, 
but they died before he came and now their faith is real. Now their faith is real. All right. We'll finish this up on Sunday and I will see all of you then.